1 Samuel chapter number 30. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse number 1 says, And it came to pass, when David and his men were come to Ziklag, on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south, and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away, and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word tonight, that you'd bless it to the hearts of your people. Lord, we've come this evening, and we need something from you. We may not be conscious of that need. Some of us are, and I'm sure there's some that aren't. But Lord, tonight we we do want to publicly and verbally recognize that as your people, we have a need of hearing from you. And I pray that you'd speak to each heart that which would bring you the most glory and bring us the closest to you. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me again at verse number 6. The Bible says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now notice this next phrase. What was David's response to his circumstances. The Bible says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. It seems as though God has just burdened my heart lately with the the idea and the truth of encouragement. And, you know, I understand encouragement is sort of, uh, you know, one of those uh, topics and one of those ideals that oftentimes, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily get down to real hard-nosed, really, I mean, you know, sheep shearing and corn shucking preaching. And uh, I know that there's a lot of preachers that, that preach on encouragement sometimes because it's a safe truth. They're not going to offend very many people. But by the same token, as we seek to be balanced in, in our Christian life, and I do believe we ought to be balanced in our Christian life, That doesn't mean we shouldn't be fanatical. We should be fanatical. But what it means is this. There is a proper emphasis for everything. And the emphasis that God places on a matter is the proper emphasis to have. And as I read through the Word of God, I find that God very often begins to deal with topics like discouragement and encouragement, consolation and comfort. The truth of the matter is we live in a very discouraging world. If you live long enough, and really you don't even have to live all that long, You're going to come across things and come across circumstances that seemingly will beat you down spiritually and emotionally. As you turn on the TV, it's easy to get discouraged. When you go down to the store and you see just the the wickedness of this world that we live in, I mean, you can can go to the store in summertime and see things that, that would have been lewd and illicit 50 years ago, And now it's just common every day. Now, for a believer, I believe just like with Saul, that that vexes our righteous soul. If that don't bother you, something's wrong. That's not to say, that's not to say that there's not a part of me that's flesh. It's not to say that there's not a part of me that, that longs to be like the world and to embrace the world. But when God saved me, I became a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
Though there's a part of me that would seek to embrace the world, there's a part of me also that recoils from the world. And when you walk through this wicked world that we live in, sometimes you just want to throw your hands up, say, what's the point anymore? All of society is bent on living contrary to God and contrary to His Word, and it's just easy to get discouraged sometimes. You know, it's easy to get discouraged in the Lord's house sometimes. It's an old rule, but I believe that it's very apt and very true that oftentimes in, in, in the house of God, you've got 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Now, if you're part of that 80%, you don't know what there is to be discouraged about. But if you're part of that 20%, you know how easy it is to get discouraged sometimes, even in the Lord's house, even amongst God's people. I mean, sometimes we have this idea that we have to get way deep in sin to get discouraged. But if you read your Bible, you'll find that times when God's people loved Him and were serving Him and were trying to do the right thing, even then discouragement came knocking upon their door. And so even in God's house, it's easy to get discouraged sometimes. Sometimes it's easy to get discouraged with your family. There's a unique dynamic to our family. To to no other people are we so tightly tethered. And yet sometimes there's no other people that drive us more crazy. But the truth of the matter is the reason they can get to us so well is because we love them so much. And sometimes even your family can be a, a discouragement to you. What I'm saying to you not church, is this. You're going to face discouragement. So what are you going to do when you do face it? You see, we have some choices in the way that we live. Every single one of us. And we find as we read about David in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that him and his men were faced with a decision and a choice concerning the circumstances they were living in. Now, most people in this world, they just walk through it blindly. They do whatever their flesh tells them to do. The Word of God teaches us that there are three distinct categories, that every person falls within one of these. They're either a natural man, that means unregenerate, lost, has no capacity to respond to the Lord, Or they're a spiritual man, which means that not only have they been saved and regenerated by the work of the Holy Ghost and by the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they walk in communion and fellowship with the Lord. And then there's what the Bible calls the carnal man. And that's the man that has been saved, that has been redeemed, that has the new nature living within him, but does not live under the power and sway and control of the Holy Spirit as he would seek to guide and lead us through the new man that's been renewed and regenerated within us. And the truth of the matter is, most Christians live as a carnal Christian. They just do what their flesh tells them to do, and that's what a carnal Christian is, someone who's saved but is driven by their flesh. Most of us don't give a thought to how we're going to respond to the circumstances around us. A wise man once said that a Christian is not uh, measured by his actions, but rather by his reactions. And the truth is, in this world that we live in, we have a choice about how we're going to live and how we're going to face the things we're going to face. Now, as I read this passage, I just want to give you three simple thoughts tonight. I want you to notice first off the setting for this encouragement that David was in. What was the context? What was going on in David's life that he needed to be encouraged? Well, as we read this passage, we're kind of jumping in the middle of a story. Uh, David has aligned aligned himself with the Philistines. He's been in a place called Aphek, and the, the Philistines are encamped against the nation of Israel. And David has actually gone, sided with the Philistines, and has a desire to go to war against the Israelites. Now, whatever David's spiritual condition was at this point is, is somewhat irrelevant, at least for the thoughts that we're looking at tonight. But David and his men are coming back. They, the lords of the Philistines uh, told their king Achish uh, that they didn't want David fighting with them, that he had no business being there. And Boy, let me say this, aren't you thankful for the things God protects you from? 
the things that you want to do, but God protects you from doing. David wanted to fight, but boy, it wouldn't have been tough when he went to Hebron and tried to assume the throne if there had been men standing there that had seen David on the other side of the battlefield. Oftentimes, the very decisions that we long for and pray for, God doesn't give us because He's protecting us. We can't see what's down the road, but God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So David has been told to go home, and he takes his men with him, and he goes back to a Philistine city by the name of Ziklag. Now, when David arrives at this city, when he arrives on the scene, you can almost imagine, if we were to use sort of poetic imagery and language, you can imagine as David and his men, astride horses, ride back to this place named Ziklag, and far off in the distance, before they ever arrive at their destination, they can see smoke uh, rising from the city. They can see it in ruin. You can imagine the way that their hearts sank even before they had arrived there. They get to the city, and they find that it is desolate. The Amalekites had arrived. David had been raiding against Amalekite cities. And in retribution for this, the Amalekites arrived. They had a desire to kill David and to kill his men. But they get there. David's not there. His men are not there. So they take captive all the women and all the children. And they leave and they take them as prisoners. David arrives upon this scene. And you can just imagine the way his heart must have sunk. And the language that's used in verse number 4, notice it, Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Boy, what a scene of just desolation, despair, and discouragement. They literally wept until they couldn't weep anymore. I don't know if you've ever been at a place like that in life. I've not been there very often, but there's been a time or two when I've been so heartbroken over something that I wept till there just wasn't any more tears to weep, wasn't any more strength. Uh, A lot of times we'll speak about a child uh, crying themselves to sleep. And you can imagine it's sort of the same scene uh, with our little boy. You know, most everybody knows he's been sick here lately. They've uh, put him on steroids. That's what a one-year-old needs, steroids. Amen? And uh, I don't have a medical degree, but I know that a kid don't need anything to help him being hyper. And uh, uh, they've put him on. And you can imagine if you've ever been on, you know, prednisone or steroids, what it does to you. So you can imagine what it does to him. And at night, he'll just cry and cry and cry and cry oftentimes. And we'll go and we'll rock him and we'll get him just about to sleep. And then uh, a mouse will scuttle or, you know, the wind will blow or something will happen. And then boom, them eyes are open. He's wide awake again. But you've been in circumstances, I'm sure, and you've seen children that just wept until they had no more power to weep. Or maybe you've been in a circumstance where you've been so heartbroken that you wept until you just couldn't weep anymore. You just laid there unable to express the grief that was ripping your heart in two. That's the picture before us. David had a very good reason to be discouraged. And I see three things basically here that I just want to touch on. I could touch on a thousand, but three times in life that often discourage us. Let me say that first off, times of great battle are breeding grounds for discouragement. You see, at the end of the day, David had been smitten by the enemy. That's what it really boils down to. He had been caught unawares, he had been caught with his guard down, and he had been smitten and buffeted by the enemy. The truth is, you and I have an enemy, and he's very cunning, and he's very deceitful, and as far as, as his tactics and strategy and technique, he's very cunning, very wise, if we could use that word, And the Word of God calls him that old serpent, the devil, the roaring lion, and there's a hundred names for him. But we have an enemy that is seeking to destroy us. 
So oftentimes we, we neglect being vigilant and, and being sober. You know, that's the exhortation that's given in First Peter chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil has a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, what does that mean, to be sober and to be vigilant? I know I've touched on it before, but I, I think it bears mentioning again. Uh, my little boy loves to watch Andy Griffith. I don't understand. I don't know how a one-year-old could enjoy it, but he does enjoy it. I don't know. I don't think he understands the jokes, but you turn on Andy Griffith and he'll just sit there and he'll watch it. And uh, you watch Andy for any length of time, you're going, you're going to come across Otis. And uh, Otis, of course, is the town drunk. He comes in every uh, Friday night or every Saturday night, and he stumbles over and he takes the key off the wall and unlocks the cell and goes in and makes himself at home until uh, Andy and Aunt B bring him breakfast the next day. But if you watch that as the quintessential, stereotypical drunk man, he's the antithesis of what being sober is. When we talk about a person that is not sober, now I understand the word sober deals with the idea of seriousness and awareness, and I'm aware of that, but there's a reason these ideals are so closely correlated to each other. See, a person that's not sober is a person that's not aware. A person that doesn't have their faculties. A person that is not sharp. A person that is not keenly aware of what's taking place around them. And I I believe that oftentimes as Christians, we grow unaware of the enemy and of the battle that's taking place around us. And we'll say, well, you know, I've just had a string of bad luck. No, you've not had a string of bad luck. There's no such thing as luck in this world. There is a spiritual battle that takes place. And that's true not only for the saint man, but for the lost man too. The devil is battling for the damnation of the souls of lost men. And the Lord would seek to see him saved. You say, give me chapter and verse. The Lord's not willing that any should perish. And certainly for the believer, there is a spiritual battle taking place. And oftentimes we attribute it to misfortune or bad luck or things of that sort. No, it's, it's not any of those things. It's the spiritual battle taking place. And oftentimes when it seems as though it's raining and pouring and everything's going wrong, we're, we're, we're discouraged, we're angry, we're frustrated. What it really is is an assault of the enemy upon our lives. And, you know, any good uh, tactician, any good general knows uh, that the more precious the ground to be gained, the more fierce the fight is going to be. Oftentimes it would behoove us when, when we know that Satan is trying to destroy us to stop and think for just a moment, you know, if he is so bent on stopping me, maybe there's something very important that God has in store for me. Maybe there's something very miraculous that God wants to see take place in my life. Because if there wasn't, the devil wouldn't be so determined to stop me from serving the Lord the way that he is. So I think in times of great battle are times of discouragement. I think also in times of great bereavement. The Bible teaches us here that uh, all the women and children had been taken. David himself had lost two wives, and we could sit here and fuss and, and uh, talk and debate about why he had two wives and whether it was right that he had two wives. I'll say this, that in the Word of God, polygamy never brought blessing or, or brought encouragement or, or brought good things in the life of a person that practiced it. Never. And you can go all the way back to the life of Jacob, and, and uh, polygamy was not something that helped or encouraged. I understand there were things that God winked at at a time, but just because God winked at it doesn't mean that he blessed it. And David had two wives, and we're told the names of them, Ahinoam and, and Abigail. And his two wives were taken in this raid. And so David himself is, is, has suffered a great loss. And his men have suffered a great loss. And let me say that in times of great loss, it's easy to be discouraged. Don't you imagine as David walked through the city and probably went to his own house, the place that he had been dwelling, don't you imagine maybe that he stopped for a moment and uh, picked up the, the, the robe that maybe his wife, one of his wives had worn. 
Maybe as he walked along, he saw a ribbon that she had kept in her hair sometimes. Or maybe as he walked through the house, he brushed his hand across the water pot that she would carry down to get water. And every little thing must have reminded him of the loss that he was experiencing. You know what it's like to have to clean out the, uh, the things of a loved one that's gone on. You know what it's like to lose mom or dad or to lose uh, someone that you love dearly. And then comes that dreaded time. You know, we, we really only see people. When they lose someone, we really only see them when it's easiest. That's the truth. We see them at the funeral home, when they're surrounded by people, when they're still numb to it. You want to see how it really hits someone? Go visit them when they're going through a box of their loved one's things. And it's at those times as you're looking at things that are flooded with memories and are flooded with, with, with cherished thoughts of your loved one, it's at those times that oftentimes discouragement will begin to set in and begin to grip you. Not just loss in the sense of death, but any sort of loss can bring discouragement. Just the absence, just the hollowness. I thought yesterday as I, you know, I was driving around and, and listening to the radio, and I'm sure a lot of you were too, and a lot of you watching the news, and I, I was thinking about... Uh, Two families, three really, but two in particular, that didn't tuck a little one into bed last night. And they never knew what that day would hold. They never knew that they'd kiss their, their little child on the cheek, and that'd be the last time that they'd ever see him. You can imagine the, the crushing weight that it must be to have to deal with something of that sort. David, for sure, I, I think he believed that his, his family was probably gone. I think he probably believed he'd never see his wives again. And all the men that are around him, surely they thought, my family is gone. And discouragement began to set in. Let me give you a third one. I I see that times of great betrayal are times when we need encouragement. Look again what it says in verse 6. It says, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. These are men that have hazarded their lives to stand with David. These are men that have left their homes, that have become uh, treasonous traitors to their country, men that were willing to stand on the opposite side of the battlefield from their loved ones so that they could be with David. They love him dearly, they love him greatly, but in this time of grief and this time of soul-crushing trouble, they begin to look around and say, why don't we just do away with David? David's the reason we're going through this. Boy, how must that have felt to have been David? What must it have felt like to look around? And you know, the real, the real thing, the real tragedy, if you've ever had a taste of leadership, you know this was probably true of David. It probably didn't just hurt him that they wanted to hurt him, but it hurt him that they were hurting. I'll say this as a pastor, that, that the, the deepest pain you ever feel as a pastor is not the pain you feel over the things that people do to you, but the things that people do to themselves. And when you see people maybe making a wrong decision or when you know you've inadvertently hurt someone and you just know the pain that they're experiencing, you you wish you could just pull it all on yourself and take it away from them, but you can't. And in that same way, I'm sure David felt the sting of betrayal. As he looked and saw the the hate-filled glares of men that he loved dearly, and how easily it would have been for him to have been discouraged. You're going to have people that love you very, very much that are going to hurt you in life. I mean people that really love you. Oh, yeah, you're, you're going to have people that you thought loved you that are going to hurt you. But you see, I don't, think, I don't think that's what we're looking at in this passage. 
I don't think we're looking at men that were hypocrites and were phonies and fakes that now were being exposed for their disloyalty to David. These very men were getting ready to follow him into battle a few hours later. Oh, they loved David. They loved David, but they still hurt him with the things that they desired to do and and with the things that they said. You're going to have folks that's going to betray you and going to hurt you in life. And let me just say that in those moments, that's a time when discouragement can be very easily found if we allow it to. So we've taken a look at the setting of this encouragement. But let me say a word about the significance of this encouragement. Why was it so important that David encouraged himself in the Lord? And I know you're probably wondering, well, how did he do it? We'll talk about that here in a moment. But I just want to say a word about why it was so important for him to encourage himself in the Lord and why it's so important for us to encourage ourselves in the Lord. Let me say first off, because of the desertion that he experienced. Let me just put it very simply. David had to encourage himself in the Lord because there was no one else to encourage him in the Lord. There's going to be times in your life when you're not going to have anyone to encourage you. Listen, we all have people that we look to to build us up and to help us and to strengthen us. I don't care who you are. We all have people like that. And oftentimes we are those people for other folks. But understand that you will experience times in your life when there's no one to encourage you. Maybe it's because they need to be encouraged, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But the truth of the matter is, the only way David was going to get encouraged was to encourage himself. He didn't have anyone that would come along beside him and say, Now, David, everything's going to be okay. David, I know it looks bleak. David, but if you just stick in, if you just stay faithful, God won't forsake you, David. And so the only thing David could do was to encourage himself. Oftentimes we stay discouraged. For two reasons. One, either because we don't have anyone to encourage us and we refuse to encourage ourselves. Or two, because folks try to encourage us and we won't let them. I've been guilty of that. I'm sure you have too. I talked about it a little bit sometime. I don't know, you know, all my messages. If they run together for you, you imagine how bad they run together for me. And uh, I was preaching, though, not long ago, and and we were talking about in life the the discouragements that we experience and the, the things that we experience and... Oftentimes, we look around and there's no one to encourage us, or there's someone that does, but we choose to wrap ourselves in our discouragement. I've been guilty of that. I'm sure you have too. Times when folks try to help, but we won't let them help, because we want to stay within the discouragement that we're experiencing. The truth of the matter is, no matter what the circumstances, when you find yourself without someone to encourage you, the thing to do if you can't find someone is you're going to have to learn to encourage yourself in the Lord. Let me point out a second thing. I think not only because of the desertion that he experienced, but because of the dependence that he knew existed. I think one of the reasons it was so important for David to encourage himself, David is a leader. David is the captain. He's the general. And if he can't encourage himself, how will he ever encourage others around him? Let me just say that oftentimes when we are looking for someone else to lift us up, Those are times when we ought to be lifting someone else up. You've got to understand that you can't help anybody when you're discouraged. Now, the the experience of discouragement oftentimes can help others, but only after we've come through it. I've never been encouraged by a discouraged person. Never in my life. I've only ever been encouraged by those that were themselves first encouraged. And understand that when you allow discouragement to grip your life, now, I don't speak this from a, from a, a seat of, of judgment. 
Because we've all been there, and I've been there. And if the Lord tarries His coming, I'm sure there'll be times I'll be there again. But understand that those moments when you indulge in that discouragement, you can't be a help to anyone. I've known people in life that were literally like a soul-sucking force upon another person. Because all they did was complain and, and discourage and bring down and cause despair. I mean, people that literally, if you spent time around them, it wouldn't be long before you'd be, you'd be down in the dumps. Wouldn't be long before everything would be going wrong in your life if you spent time around. Well, it's not that anything was going wrong in your life, but it's just that whereas before you just took encouragement in the Lord and in His promises, if you surround yourself by people that do that to you, pretty soon you'll start to adopt their attitude and bring it upon yourself. See, it was so important for David to be encouraged because he had 200 men that needed encouraging. He had people all around him that needed encouragement. And where were they going to look if they couldn't look to their general? I say this as a, as a father and as a husband. Not as a pastor. I say it as a father and a husband. I can't expect my wife to be encouraged if I'm not encouraged. And husbands, we have a lot of say in the attitude that our wives have. We all, you know, everybody likes to quote Ephesians chapter 5, and everybody likes to, as husbands, well, I'm the head of the home, and I'm this, and I'm that. Well, that's true, but if you're a real leader, you're going to seek to encourage your wife. You're going to seek to try to do things that are going to build her up and lift her up. I'm not talking about puff her up, I'm talking about build her up. I'm not talking about allowing your home to be wild or to be lawless, but I'm talking about encouraging her. We have such a tendency as men to just jump down the throats of our wives sometimes. Now, I'm being honest now. We have such a tendency sometimes to take such a harsh line. I know why it is, because we're men and we don't ever do anything wrong, right? Or maybe it's because it's easy sometimes to take it out on our wives. Now, let me tell you something, husband. What they need is somebody that's going to encourage them. They need a husband that's going that, to that's encourage them, tell them how much that he loves them, cares about them. Tell them that even though they may have messed up or failed or may have made a mistake, that that's all right. I know you don't believe this, men, but you know we make mistakes too. That's the truth. You see, the truth of the matter is he had to be encouraged so he could encourage others. And as husbands and fathers, we need to understand this. We can't encourage our wives and our children if we're not encouraged. That's true of anything. We can't, we can't expect our wives and our children to walk with the Lord if we won't walk with the Lord. We can't expect them to pray if we won't pray. We can't expect them to be faithful church if we're not faithful church. I know I'm talking to the Wednesday night crowd. I understand that. But I'm trying to mind the Holy Ghost tonight. I believe this is what the Lord wants me to say. We've got to get this through our head. We're leaders. Not we should be. Not we hope to be. Not if everything works right we are. We are leaders. So it's really just a question of how we're leading. Not whether we're leading or not. It doesn't say the husband should be the head of the wife. It says he is the head of the wife. So how are we leading, men? What are we doing to encourage our wives, we've got folks depending on us. I'm not going to preach on it, but we could say the same thing about ladies as well. Folks that are depending on you. And I say this as a husband. I, I, I could not, I mean, listen now, I couldn't do what I do in ministry if I didn't have the wife that I've got. She encourages me. She goes out of her way to encourage me. Times when I don't deserve encouragement, she encourages me. Times when I, you know, you've heard the preachers talk before about folks that sit, and sit on the church pew and say, you know, bless me if you can. Sometimes I get that way with my wife, you know. Encourage me if you can. But she just keeps on trying. What I'm saying is this. you got people looking to you to be encouraged. 
So you're going to have to learn sometimes to encourage yourself. Then notice thirdly the duty that they had. The truth of the matter is this. They could have stayed there and they could have wept and wallowed. But their wives had to be rescued. Their kids had to be rescued. You see, there was a battle to fight. And so they couldn't stay in the pit of discouragement. I know this may seem like tough love and harsh words, but here's the reality. Whatever you're going through, you're not the first to go through it. You're not the last that's going to go through it. The work of the Lord is too important to stay discouraged all the time because we can't do the work of the Lord when we're discouraged. So, like it or lump it, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to pick up, encourage ourselves in the Lord, and go on. Because there's a great and grand work to be done. And the Lord deserves all the glory for it. He deserves the glory out of our lives. So we're going to have to pick up. We're going to have to go on and do it anyway, whether we feel like it or not, because the Lord deserves that. He's worthy of that. There's a work to be done. We can't do the work while we're discouraged, so we're going to have to encourage ourselves sometimes. We could lament and cry that there's no one to encourage us, but that won't get the work done. The only thing that will get it done is to encourage ourselves and to go on. So let me say a quick word about the substance of this encouragement. We've seen what it was that caused this scene of discouragement and and prompted a need for encouragement. We've seen the things that made this encouragement so important that, that there was no one else to do it and that there was folks depending on David and that there was a work to be done. But let's say a word about some of the things I believe David thought about and meditated on to encourage himself in the Lord. Notice the phrasing that's used in verse 6. It says, But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Every word in that King James Bible is there on purpose. It's not there on accident. And there's four things that I see in this passage that I think David thought about and dwelt upon. I think it's implied by the name that's given for the Lord and by the things that are said here. Let me say first off that I believe he dwelt upon the power of God. The Bible gives the name that the Lord uh, uh, was recognized by in David's heart as the Lord his God. That word Lord, Jehovah, the Old Testament national name of the Godhead, of God the Father. Uh, That name denoted the idea of oneness, of singularity, and of supreme and absolute power. The name God that's given is the name Elohim, and it's the generic name for God. But that also denotes the idea of the God of creation. When the Bible says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's the first introduction we have to God in the Word of God. And it's in the beginning, and He is the creative God and the Creator God. And so I believe that one of the things that David thought about was he thought about God's power and His ability to control a situation. He recognizes that he is the creator, but he also recognizes that he is the national God of the nation of Israel and of the men that were there. Can I just say to you that no matter what's going on in your life, it would do us good sometimes to just dwell upon God's power and his ability to intervene in any situation. We have a powerful God. I mean, whatever you're facing. I, I just got through uh, praying with uh, Miss Shirley Holt at the at the hospital. I went to her home last night, and, and we prayed with her, and I saw her again this morning and prayed with her. She's having surgery. You know, I know that's got to be a discouraging thing. It's got to be an intimidating thing. But do you know that God is powerful enough to intervene in a surgery? God's powerful enough to intervene in our circumstances. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by the Creator God Almighty. And He's powerful enough to intervene in our bodily health. I think He thought about the power of God, but then I think He thought about the past of God. 
Now, I understand God is, is, is uh, an eternal God. I'm aware of that. He's outside of time. But what I mean is I think he thought about the history of God. Because this, this name Lord, Jehovah, being the national name of Israel, is always tied and connected to the covenant promises of God and to the things that God has done for His people. And so I think one of the things, and you'll find this to be true all throughout the book of Psalms, Psalms is like a history book almost. I mean, on one psalm it'll be talking about the, the personal history of the psalmist. In another psalm it'll be talking about the, the uh, universal history of this world. In another psalm it'll be talking about the national history of the nation of Israel. David, in writing over half the psalms, he understood the history of the nation of Israel. He understood the covenant relationship that God had with his Elect people, And the use of this name Jehovah is significant because it denotes the God of, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph. And I think one of the things that David must have thought about in encouraging himself in the Lord was thinking about God's track record. I was telling uh, the Holtz yesterday as I prayed with him, we was just talking about how good God is, we was talking about God's faithfulness. You know, they've got a few years on them and they, they've, the Lord's been with them for a lot of years and we were talking about God's faithfulness throughout the years. And I made the statement to Miss Shirley. I said, here's the thing, Miss Shirley. God's never made a mistake, ever. And I've kind of got a feeling he ain't going to start with Shirley Holt. Amen? God's never made a mistake. What makes you think he'd start with your circumstances? I mean, this is the very same God that parted the Red Sea. This is the very same God that, that has delivered time after time the nation of Israel. This is the very same God that saved you. This is the very same God that has answered for you and has came through for you and delivered for you time and time and time again. And sometimes when we're at the lowest point, it would do us well to just read our history book and think back to everything God's done in our lives. I think he thought about the past of God. I, I like this. I think he thought about the possession of God. Now look what it says. But David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. Now it could have said the Lord God, and that would have been true. It could have said the Lord, the only God, and it would have been true. But the Word of God is very specific to say that when David encouraged himself, one of the things he thought about was the fact that Jehovah, this all-powerful God, this God with a flawless track record, this God that had answered untold amounts of times, this God was His God. He said, that, that God's my God. Or as the psalmist would later say, as David would sit down and pin the Lord, He's my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And sometimes it'd do us good to just remember how much God loves us. Just to remember how much God cares about us. I know it's discouraging living in this world, but do you understand this, that God loved you enough to send His Son to die for you? He's not going to throw you to the side now. He's your God. He's my God. I mean, this is the same God that hears when we pray. This, this is the, the same God that parted the... The same God that created this world is the very same one that when we're discouraged and we lift up our soul unto Him, answers us. That's the same God. That's an astounding truth. Just to know that that's our God. The very one that has answered something, that's our God. And not only is He our God, but we're His people. You see, there's something intrinsic to ownership, and that's responsibility. Many of you, I'm sure when you were growing up, there were times when you asked your parent for a pet, maybe a dog or a cat. I don't know why anybody would want a cat, but folks have them, so 
whatever. That's between you and I don't understand you, but that's your business. But maybe you ask, ask your parents for a dog or a cat or a fish or something. And they might have said something like this to you. They might have said, okay, but when we get him, he's your responsibility. He's your dog, and he's your responsibility. You've got to feed him. You've got to watch after him. You've got to take care of him because he's your dog. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Or could we maybe just say it a little bit differently? Maybe we could say that what David was saying is, I'm the Lord's sheep. I'm his sheep. If he's my shepherd, then I'm his sheep. And I belong to him, and I'm his responsibility. I'm his responsibility to take care of me, to see to my needs, to watch over me, and to care for me. I believe David was encouraged by that truth and that fact. And then there's something I think that's consequential. I'll just touch on it while we close. And I think that's the providence of God. You see, you can't think about the power of God and the past of God and the possession of God without being brought to a conclusion. And that's that God is a providential God. I'm sure David was encouraged because he knew God had a plan and a purpose in it. We're going to see as we read. Well, we're not going to read on, but I hope you do. If you read on down in verse number 19, you know, you know how the story kind of wraps up with these words. So David recovered all. So it says in verse 19, David recovered all. Recovered both of his wives, recovered his family. All the men that were with him recovered everything that belonged to them. And in fact, they had over and abundant what they did have. Could I just propose to you that we couldn't have mountaintops without valleys in between? And sometimes when we're down in the midst of the valley and in the place of discouragement, it would behoove us to understand that only by God bringing us to such depths could God raise us to such heights. Only through the dark times could we be brought into that kind of light. And many times when we think there's no way, and when we think there's no purpose, we don't understand it, but the truth of the matter is that's when God is working the grandest purpose in our lives.